0: Hey everyone and welcome to our rolling coverage of the OSCERT conference here on the Gold Coast. I'm Patrick Gray. Big thanks to our OSCERT coverage sponsors, FireEye, Arbor Networks and Datacom TSS. Without them, I wouldn't be here pumping out these talks and interviews. So yeah, big thanks to the sponsors. You're about to hear an interview I recorded with Bob Clark. He currently teaches law at the U.S. Naval Academy, but he's been doing military law for a long time. He uh, even served as the operational attorney for the U.S. Army Cyber Command at one point. I posted his talk yesterday in which he touched on the Weave versus AT&T trial, uh, and I thought it would be interesting to get his perspective Uh, On the CFAA to expand on some of the thoughts that he expressed uh, during his talk, precisely because it's not the sort of thing he normally concerns himself with. Um, He has less of an agenda than like a defence attorney or a prosecutor. He's mostly focused on uh, you know being a real expert in the international laws of armed conflict as they apply to the quote cyber domain. Uh, So yeah, I just thought it would be good to get a pseudo outsider's perspective on this stuff. Now, if you haven't heard the episode of the regular Risky Business podcast where I have a uh, where I had a chat with Weave and recap. Uh, that whole Weave versus AT&T thing, you might want to check it out because we reference it in this interview. Uh, But I'll drop you into the interview now, recorded here on the Gold Coast at Ossert 2014. I hope you enjoy it. I understand that you might have actually caught the interview that I did with uh, Andrew Orenheimer, a.k.a. Weave.
1: I I did. Excellent, excellent interview. Very interesting. Uh, I have to admit, as I was listening to it, uh, I was talking to an FBI agent here, as a matter of fact, thinking... I'm sure they were taking copious notes as uh, on that interview uh, with different things going on. So yes, it was very interesting.
0: Yeah, I thought uh, it was quite bold <laughs> at certain points, uh, but there were certain things that he mentioned, and you know, he doesn't strike me as the finest legal mind uh, in, in the world. But he made some pretty good points. Uh, probably the best I thought was that there is a multi-billion-dollar cybercrime problem in the United States. Uh, that the FBI is largely powerless to act against. They can't extradite a lot of these criminals from Russia. So they need to be seen to be doing something, which is why they've gone after people like, you know, Aaron Swartz. They've gone after people like Weave, who in the grand scheme of things, let's face it, they're just sort of, you know, they've been doing things that the establishment don't like, not necessarily inflicting great harm. I mean, uh, uh, do you grudgingly see his point, even if you don't agree with it necessarily?
1: So the Computer Front Abuse Act is is a challenging statute, and uh, we, we learned years ago in the military that challenging means a problem. Um, and, and from that, it, you know, remember, the thing's 30 years old. It's it's still arguably in its infancy. And so um, there's been a lot of great judicial processes uh, interpreting this aspect. I see both sides of the coin. I, I don't like the hyperbole that I see at both ends of it. Um, and it's got to be balanced. Um as far as uh, Aaron Schwartz, you know, it, it was interesting that, that strikes to another heart of the, of the United States problem, and that in that is our, our aspect of how we handle uh, mental health issues and allowing folks to get health, help, um, because clearly it doesn't help that you have charges piled on you, but we need to do a lot better for providing folks' services for mental health. I,
0: I think, though, 35 years, looking down the barrel of 35 years for breaking into a wiring cabinet is probably, I mean, it really struck most people, probably even more so, people outside of the United States, that he was targeted more for his politics uh, than he was for his actions.
1: And, and that, and, you know, and, and that's another, I, I think, uh, if I recall hearing Jennifer Granick talk to you about that, that topic uh, back in the day, and she had mentioned, I think, words to the effect that, You've got to understand how government prosecutions work. We're always going to threaten you with you're facing 180 years and 25 life sentences, so you'll plead and speed things along in the U.S. court system on, on aspects of life. So, yes, so what actually happened there was not outside of the realm of typical prosecutorial conduct in the whole variety of any type of U.S. crime that's charged there which is not to say to take away that the judicial system has to be fully aware of the effects of when you charge these things of what effect that's going to have as a human being and take the responsibilities for that so so absolutely i don't
0: i, I just think that stress can can you know can really affect someone who's not mentally ill you know it's a, it's a hell of a thing
1: <laughs> a- absolutely the, the whole aspect of that needs there there needs to be a system better and i think defense counsels share some of that responsibility that when these things happen to start helping the aspect of people understand what they're faced with. And as a counsel, that's my job. Uh, when you come to me is to explain the situation and try to help. So those burdens. So I do agree with that, absolutely. Um, as far as what the FBI can do and, and DOJ for investigating Computer Fraud and Abuse Act aspects, um, wea've was a challenge because I've heard differing you know arguments whether at and t felt and they really was the hyperbole from both sides where AT&;T felt they were a victim they wanted something done and then I've heard the defense say oh well ATT really didn't care um, And from that aspect then you're getting into prosecutorial judgment to be able to make a, a decision a discretion prosecuted discretion that all prosecutors have do I bring this case? do I not bring this case um, And talking to some folks when you look at that analysis of it, why the hell it was brought up in New Jersey, Given what the venue should have been, um, well, and was, this
0: is and this is how he won his appeal, right? Is um, is they decided that the it, you know it had been brought in the wrong jurisdiction. But interestingly enough, in your presentation yesterday, uh, you know you you said it was like dismissed under a sort of section of the was it the Constitution or the another document was no, it? So was the Declaration. It
1: was the Declaration of Independence,
0: Declaration of Independence which said you can't be uh, brought to a different jurisdiction to be charged under pretend crimes. Now, you've got to imagine that if a judge in a federal court is tossing something and calling it a pretend crime, then you know, everyone's been saying, well, oh, okay, this, uh, uh, this appeal got decided because it was the wrong venue. But if you look into the judgment and what the judge has actually said, it seems that they're kind of calling the charge pretend.
1: Well, so I'm going to disagree because judges, first off, they're not going to rule on the merits of a case if they can avoid it. If they can get it off on a technicality, which was the venue technicality, they didn't have to run the merits of the case. So the judge cited the declaration for being hauled off to faraway lands to be tried, and the Declaration of Independence does say for pretend offenses, but then he cited the Constitution and the two different amendments in there in terms of what the proper venue was and dismissed it for the venue. It's interesting because the case was dismissed without prejudice, meaning that the it can come back, right? can bring it again. I have not heard or seen anything moving towards wanting to do that. Uh, we, You agree. Weave is not a sympathetic defendant whatsoever. Um, as a defense counsel, he's the kind of client I would want to represent only from it's, it's a challenge because you're going to have to win this case solely on making the government prove beyond a reasonable doubt because he's not going to help you a whole heck of a lot, it looks like, uh, on that.
0: Yeah, well, I could sense uh, Marsha Hoffman having a heart attack uh, as she listened to the interview that I did with him.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, she's the person I'm calling if, 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 if you know, hey, all defense attorneys say, hey, if the government comes knocking on your door, don't, invoke your rights, give me a call, and, and and then we'll discuss. And Marsha's one of the people that I definitely would pick up the phone and call for computer fraud and abuse acts aspects in life. So, and, and as is Orrin Carr. So, he's not going to help himself from this aspect. But then the, the, you know, the next aspect is I, I'd be surprised actually if they do decide to prosecute this because it seems like it's gotten its run. They did get the conviction the first time, at, so they could say, yeah, we got a conviction. It was the wrong he thing. He did here. 14
0: months in prison, yes. whatever.
1: Yeah. So, Well, look, I,
0: before we started this interview, you were discussing with me the idea of intent in the CFAA, um, which really becomes interesting. So, okay, you're on your, you know, a website of a financial services company or a telco or whatever. You change a number in a URL. And then, oh, you know, bang, up pops some personally identifiable information. Okay, so you do it once, you know, maybe you stop doing that. You notify, okay, Uh, and then your intentions are, you know, clearly seen as wholesome. You do it two times, three times. I mean, at what point does your does that is that enough for prosecutors to say that your intent was nefarious? Uh, Which is, you know, very interesting. But but this is the problem, right? As someone who's been floating around the the infosec world for quite a while. Basically, until you've scraped someone's entire database, they don't listen.
1: Yeah, that, that's an interesting challenge. Uh, so I was also talking on uh, the Jones case, which is our GPS case, and Judge Alito, in his opinion, was talking about you know, what the length of a search using a GPS on a car could be. And he thought, well, 30 days is too long, so that's unreasonable, but shorter searches could be reasonable, which is kind of like you just said, Computer Fraud Abuse Act. Okay, if I scrape your system for 50 emails and don't get your attention, all right, but if I scrape it for a 50, thousand, <laughs> 50,000, and I've now got your attention, and oh, by the way, yes, I've pissed you off while I've done it, uh, in like this case, you know, and, and a little slight difference here, when they sent the emails out to the media, media notified AT&T, and the next thing you know, we've faced trial up in New Jersey, you know, that's the aspect there. Where is that balance in terms of, I'm a security professional, And or, you know, again, the hyperbole from the government side where, well, we're going to do this so we can get publicity to start our own security company. It's a very tough balance. Again, I'd like to say it's a mature law. 30 years, people would say, 30 years, how many years do you need? Well, you know, laws are constantly being interpreted by well, and, and,
0: the and, and this so. is the big question do we need more case law here do we need it tested more I mean it's been around for 30 years okay but you know computing and computer crime has changed a lot in that, in that period or do you think it needs serious reform because that seems to be, a, a lot of people out there seem to think that it needs serious reform, but at the same time, they don't think it's going to happen.
1: And, and so I'm going to uh, do what I always do, quote somebody else, uh, and that would be Orrin Carr. He, you know, he's written a lot of different larvae articles and testified as to the need for the, the reforming of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, uh, as well as the Electronic Communication Privacy Act. But so uh, you know, he's, I would say, the legal mind in terms of reforming Computer Fraud and Abuse Act aspects. We've got a whole lot of different interpretations of cases going like mostly for the insider threat aspects of like when you exceed your authority so that's going through the challenges to the court system right now and, and it, hopefully at some point in time the Supreme Court is going to weigh in to resolve the different uh, interpretations you have the, of the circuits going on there U.S. V. came out, which dealt a lot with the aspects of people being worried that, oh, if I violate my employer's terms of service, and I'm, you know, they say, don't surf, you know, the web during lunch, and I'm sitting there checking my scores on...
0: That's a crime in yes, U.S. Yes. law. So,
1: uh, is, is that a crime? And, and, you know, DOJ and colleagues have come out of the book saying, look, we're not going to take someone to jail.
0: Yeah, but do you want to leave that up to prosecutorial discretion? I mean, you might just wind up with someone who's a little bit overzealous, and then... You know, then you've got people hauled in front of the courts. I mean, it is a waste of the court's time, and I don't think a judge is going to sentence it. But do you really want to leave it to the discretion of prosecutors and judges to determine that violating your employer's terms of service at work, you know, isn't a federal crime?
1: And, again, not being the expert on it or going on the books, I think DOJ is on the books saying if you violate your employer's terms of service, we're not going to prosecute you. Uh, they, They pretty much have point blank said, that's not what we're interested in here.
0: But that's a policy decision, not a law decision. I mean, it just seems that, okay, that's great why they have this policy. You know, I understand that prosecutorial discretion and the policies of, you know, prosecuting organizations is very important and it guides a lot of what happens. But sometimes a law is just
1: dumb. So prosecutorial discretion goes across the board. So depending on how, when you bring so much amount of uh, illegal, illicit drugs across the border, if it's not a certain amount and I'm not going to prosecute it, that's prosecutorial discretion from the aspect in terms of that. Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, you know, DOJ being on the books is saying, yeah, we're not prosecuting for violations of terms of service. And you you say different administrations come in and can interpret things differently. Well, that's key because, you know, you're going to get in and have someone write a torture memorandum and then the next administration, which, again, back to the books of the military lawyers, all four judge advocate generals, the judge advocate generals of the armed services said, uh, no, that's torture and disagreed with the Department of Justice interpretation on that. And then new administration comes in and says, yeah, we're throwing this out because we don't agree with that interpretation aspect. So, So laws are constantly going to be subject to interpretation aspects. And then God bless folks like the EFF and ACLU with our adversarial proceedings, because unfortunately sometimes that's the best way to get bad laws off the books is to get them in front of the courts. Where, at the end of the day, if the government briefs and oral arguments can't carry the weight, and EFFs and ACLUs can, then that's the way it should be. That's that's the adversarial judicial system that we've set up. And if, from what I've seen around the world, you know, again, my humble personal opinion in my little small world that I live in. It's a pretty damn good system to, to resolve things. It's not perfect, but then the huge problem with this is all the world's systems of governments are made up of men and women, and, and men and women, like Hal says, um, you guys are subject to human error, and you make mistakes, and, and, and we're going to. And, and unfortunately, sometimes that's only the best way to fix it.
0: Speaking of mistakes, do you think the charges brought against Aaron Swartz, the federal charges, do you think that was a mistake?
1: That's outside. I mean, that's really outside the realm. Of you my must mind.
0: have a personal opinion of it. Come um,
1: on. You know the. And again, going back to what Jennifer said, she goes, when we charge crimes, any crimes, you, you always, as as the prosecutor, you, you you heap on the amount of years that they're faced with, hoping to speed things along. Because if everybody went to trial. We, we we would just be actually... So the, the
0: intent is to bully people with charges that aren't going to stick, terrify them into looking down the barrel of a life sentence to get them to cop to something less.
1: So, again, prosecutorial misconduct, aspects of life. As an attorney, I can only bring either a civil suit and criminal suits that I believe ethically, in all the state bars and the federal bars that we belong to as attorneys, say you can only bring these charges... Ethically, if you believe that they are valid and and you can prove your case. So,
0: which makes the question doubly important. Do you think the right thing was done in that instance?
1: So, arguably, I don't know the full facts of the Aaron Schwartz aspects in life. I've seen both sides and actually the hyperbole on it. And so the question becomes what was done if, again, it's if the attorney is bringing cases that aren't warranted, what aspects or, or what judicial misconduct was brought against that particular attorney? And, you know we see the same thing with law enforcement too, if they 're violating rights, the civil rights action and suits that you can bring so from that so i 'm going to apologize from this aspect because i don 't know enough the facts of what actually Aaron Schwartz had done um, again, anytime anyone loses their life at their own hand, it is a tragic occurrence there there's just no two ways about it, and you 've got to really take a good hard look at what 's going on you know from that aspect to say, what happened here. What were the mistakes made? Were the mistakes made? And who's going to actually be liable for it? Um, and there's a huge problem. You know, hey, uh, our, our Constitution says we're entitled to petition our government for grievances. And so if mistakes were made, then, then somebody should be held to be responsible for those.
0: Robert Clark, thanks a lot for your time.
1: Thanks, Patrick. Always oh, great to see you.